Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Kate Cotter, the Executive Director of the Sierra Psychedelic Society. Kate is a former local musician who's dedicated her second half of her career to educating and informing and advocating for the healing use of psychedelic medicines. This is a really powerful conversation. We cover a lot of topics, the importance of education, integration, who should and shouldn't use these types of medicines. Then we dive deep into the current state of the policy in the state of Nevada uh, regarding SB 242, the impact of this work on veterans, and just have a really engaged and interesting conversation. So on with the podcast. Kate, it's good to see you. Thank you for coming on the Growth Pioneers podcast. I've been looking forward to chatting with you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, you know, you and I have known each other for a little while, got to know each other a little bit better over the last couple of years, but I'm just really excited by the work you're doing. You're currently in the role of executive director of the Nevada Coalition for Psychedelic Medicine and also the executive director of the Sierra Psychedelic Society, which I want to learn, we're going to dive into and learn all about. But before we do that, can you just give me a little bit of background, kind of on your personal background and how you ended up in this uh, really interesting role? <laughs> That's a great question. I have been back in Reno for over 25 years. I was born here, but mostly grew up in Oregon and have spent most of my career as a singer-songwriter. I have a degree in uh, a BA in, in religion and French, which I would say the religion piece, I've always been a seeker as far as spirituality and really wanting to understand the the mechanisms at play between our you know existence in this world and the meaning of life, to sum it up. How I came into a role with the psychedelics is, I would say, a little bit of a winding road. I was a child of the 80s, so I did not, well, I was afraid that psychedelics would scramble my chromosomes and fry my brain, and I didn't even smoke pot till I was 23. Well, Nancy in, Reagan did a number on me too. <laughs> yes, so you understand. So this was not a natural vocation for me that I would have selected if you told me I would end up being the president of the psychedelic society. I would have probably thought you were on drugs. But as circumstances would have it, in 2006, I had some profound experiences with psychedelics that changed my life and set me on a trajectory. And over the last 15 plus years, there's been a lot of intensive research and personal exploration and they have been the single greatest tool for my own healing and personal and spiritual growth. And at the end of the day, I felt such a deep sense of purpose about advocating for drug policy reform and bringing access for healing that, as I was mentioning to you right before we started, though I consider myself probably semi-retired as a musician at this point, I still enjoy playing out and I do from time to time. And I love music. This has been a, a natural segue as far as a second career, I guess you, you would call it. I'm very devoted to the cause. Well, first of all, you're just a you know woman after my own heart. I, I love music and also a product of the 80s, so I think we have a lot in common there. And unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to see you play, but I, I have been, I guess, somewhere where I heard you sing a little bit, and, and you're exceedingly talented, so hopefully you, you don't stay completely retired. Um, no, I'll, I'll still play out. Good. Yeah. It, you know, you had some experiences with this type of medicine earlier, you know, than what we'd probably call the third wave, which has been kind of going on for the past, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years, maybe. I don't exactly know what that is. But, you know, was there something that really shifted for you in terms of like really dedicating your life to this new purpose? I mean, like what was what was the moment that you decided or there were a series of moments that really led you to take on this role, both as an educator and as an advocate? That's a great question. If I, looking back, honestly speaking, it was probably when I read Pollen's book. I had been, all of my friends knew that I was just on this quest of understanding the nature of psychedelics and had been very systematically and conscientiously deepening my relationship with them. And I was fascinated particularly with the neuroscience, spiritual component, and 
I had not at that time read a lot of the research papers that many of them hadn't come out yet, but some of them had Robin Carr Harris's work had been out at that point. And when I read Pollen's book in 2018, I consumed it for it was I think I read it one fell swift in two days. And there was this sense in me of hope that here was a respected journalist who was able to bridge this world of, let's be honest, that psychedelics carry a boatload of stereotypes, calling to mind Timothy Leary, and we have a beautiful Burning Man culture here in Nevada. Burning Man has been something that has brought a lot of value to my life, but it is also difficult to go in and talk with legislators. And at the time I wasn't talking to legislators in 2018, but being able to translate this and legitimize psychedelics as medicine and explain this. And when I got to the end of the book and he was talking about CIAS having psychedelic therapy, it felt like something shifted in me. And I realized that there was a platform or there was some traction and that this burning desire to help bring some healing in the form of psychedelics might actually be feasible in, in my lifetime. And I would qualify this by saying too that my feeling of calling to, to work in this sector is always, I would say, measured by very important level of a disclaimer because it's not about everybody should go out and do psychedelics. Yeah. It's not safe for everyone. And that's part of the reason Sierra Psychedelic Society was founded based on education and promoting risk management in addition to building community. But it's very important in this third wave, the genie is out of the bottle fully. And there is quite a narrative out there that psychedelics are a panacea and a magic bullet. And though you can have a, a one-hit wonder experience for sure. My my personal journey has been one of peeling back the layers and a lot of work. And I think providing guidance and dispelling some of the myths and some of the misconceptions is very, very important. So to the degree of, of my devotion to this cause is also a degree of, of caution that goes hand in hand. Yeah, really well said. I, you know, for those listeners that may not be familiar, we're talking about Michael Pollan, the author of uh, How to Change Your Mind, which is both a Netflix series and a book. And we lovingly say people have been pollinated after they <laughs> read the That's book. Great. Also a very Im influential book for me. And, and you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Also, I think, you know, what I'm really hearing, and I think this is great, this is a good time to talk. This is not, we're not in any way advocating for the use of psychedelic medicine. It's it's definitely not for everybody. And there are, it's, it is in that kind of that hype curve that, you know, that kind of J curve or S curve, whatever the curve is for, you know, hype curve. It does seem like, like you said, there is this panacea. It's going to solve all of these problems. And it, and, you know, if you inject that into our culture, which is like, oh, we just take a pill and everything's okay, that, you know, that can be a recipe for less than ideal outcomes. And hence the need for, you know, the Sierra Psychedelic Society. So we've touched on it a little bit, but the primary mission of that organization is what? Is to provide education around psychedelic medicines and to promote risk management and to build community. And what has been, well, to my great surprise and true delight, the diversity of age range and walks of life that people attend it is not uncommon for in our meetings and in our integration circles to have college students and young professionals and to therapists and medical professionals and single moms all the way up to people in their 50s, 60s, 70s who are there seeking information. And some people are well on their path with their own experiences and journeys. Others are just starting out and or maybe curious to find out more information. And what I've also been feeling such a deep sense of gratitude around is that the community has grown. It's been just over a year since we started. And Tori Clark, who's a dear friend of both of ours, did a recent talk 
and her husband, Justin Van Pelt, had done one before then. There were probably 75 people at at Tori's talk and close to that at Justin's as well. And we meet at the studio, which is the yoga studio, and would like to say a shout out to Rochelle Lanning, who has been unbelievably generous in supporting this movement, offering up her gorgeous space as our headquarters for all of our integration circles and our meetings and workshops. We could not have done this without her. But the community that has been gathering there, it never ceases to amaze me because we have a rotation of integration circles on Wednesday nights, and there's also a first responder and veteran integration circle, which is one of the Monday nights. I believe it's the fourth Monday. And often, some of them are standard integration circles. Some of them are focused on Jungian approach with symbols and meanings. The first one of the month, we just changed this up. I, I would double check the website because we were just in the process of changing. But one of them is a peer support for addiction circle, not specifically based on substances, but around the concept that anything that has a compulsive bit of a grip on you, whether it's intrusive thoughts or even, you know, disordered eating or or behaviors, just the common human experience that yeah. we have and knowing the ability of particular efficacy with certain the classic psychedelics to be helpful with this. But people will come to these circles and the pretense is there that we have a, a topic to discuss about psychedelics. But more than anything it tends to be a group of people coming together to talk about personal growth in a space that is shared and, and vulnerable without judgment and the bonds that are formed. And it hit me particularly at the hearing for SB242, the Senate bill that I think we'll be circling back to at some point, but the outpouring of community support from Sierra Psychedelic Society. This was a defining moment for me and it was almost exactly a year from when we had started. And all of these people came down to Carson from Reno and dressed up. And I at first wasn't sure if we were going to be able to get people to come because it's hard enough to take time off work or get childcare, get all dressed up, go down to the legislature building. Public speaking in, in general is terrifying for most people, let alone sharing your deepest, most vulnerable yeah. testimony in front of legislators and law enforcement about a legal substance. And yet we needed the overflow room. And it was evident that this group had become a, a family of yeah. sorts. And so I feel that it's meeting a need in the community. And it's not uncommon for people to reach out because their therapists have directed them to us for information. Yeah. Unfortunately, they're we can't provide access to the medicine, which is continues to be because of the legality. But as you know, we're working yeah. hard to change that. So, well, but even you know, I like I think I mean we'll we'll definitely talk about the the policy and and I think just creating a space like a, a safe space where people can talk about. It. I mean, clearly you've tapped into a nerve. I mean, this is as we talked about. This is like on the national conversation. It's you know, it's not. Joe Rogan, it's on Tim Ferriss. I mean, there's all these people. Johns Hopson's getting tens of millions of dollars. I mean, there's this is not just an isolated thing. This is a a wave that is going through our culture. And so it's great that you're able to create a space where people can get quality information. They have resources, they have, you know, connections. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that there's a lot of isolation in, in the world right now. I mean, I, you know, I do work with a lot of men, and I think it's particularly isolated there, but um just to find that connectivity in that community and a space where you can share those things that you've been lurking deep inside of you is, is profoundly powerful. And so, so for you know, just kind of double clicking on one thing that you said, I'm not sure that everybody understands what an integration circle is. So maybe you could kind of like, where does integration fit in the arc of, you know, the psychedelic experience? With the psychedelic experience there, it's important to note that from what we know, especially you know, given the thousands, if not tens of thousands of years that some of the indigenous communities have been using psychedelic medicines for a variety of, you know, many different practices and protocols up to the clinical trials and the research and how the brain works, that we have extraordinary opportunity for healing with psychedelic medicines. And a lot of that is in the preparatory phase, the intention that you set going into it, set and setting, mindset, the environment, and then post-journey, 
the integration phase. And so a lot of the work and the healing can be done and is done in the integration phase. And so what this looks like, and you have integrative therapists and coaches and counselors who can be helpful in this process, but you don't necessarily need one of one of them to do your work. There are integration practices, which can be journaling, it can be meditation, it can be verbally processing. And so when we have an integration circle, people can attend and talk about a psychedelic experience that they've had and and bring it up to process with the group. And sometimes with psychedelic experiences, as you know, they can be challenging, they can be transcendent and blissful, and they can be both in the same experience. But sometimes, particularly with challenging experiences, you might have symbols or stuff that comes up that you don't necessarily know what to do with. And so the processing and the framing of it is a huge part of the healing. So having these integration circles where people can come and talk and oftentimes get guidance or comparing notes. We had one last night. You know, I learned some really interesting things from the group that I didn't know or hadn't thought of, questions I hadn't even thought to ask. And so it's a continual process of learning. Yeah, no, it's great. I I, I love your description of it. I, I, I guess I kind of think about integration is is like the harvest of the experience, right? And that's where you really take what was learned, you know, what what you experienced and sort of turn it into meaning in your life. And that can be a couple of weeks, that could be a couple of months, that could be a couple of years, right? Like integration can be a long time, but that's the, that's where all the real, real work is. And I think, I mean, one of a, a friend of mine would say, I thought this was brilliant. Like people take drugs for the experience and that's like getting high. People take psychedelic medicine for the integration, right? Mm. That, you know, there is an experience there. You're not, no one's, people aren't taking these medicines to escape. They're trying to get closer to themselves or understand some subconscious part of themselves or something along those lines. And that at the, on the other side, after the experience is done, that's where the real work is done. So, you know, because some of these medicines have, you know, some history, right? I mean, MDMA is a classic or is one, is considered one of the classic psychedelics, I guess, or it's one of, it's not, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a empathogen it's or an empathogen. Right. Correct. Sorry. It's been used in rave culture for all these years. So in that context, people aren't really using it in the form of healing. But then assisted therapy with MDMA is proving to be revolutionary for helping PTSD. In fact, the uh, FDA, it's already passed FDA clinical trials uh, th- phase three. I expect that it will be legalized in some form in the next you know year to two, and you can learn from maps. But I guess the point there is that these things, like anything that have utility, could also be abused. So it's really more about set and setting and intention and integration. Very well said, Doug. And something that wasn't always evident to me, but we know or we believe that there's a critical period of plasticity, of neuroplasticity that extends sometimes up to two weeks after a macro dose. And so when you're in that space, it's very rich because you can still leverage that plasticity after the journey proper with the intention of being in that space. And there's a lot of ways to do it. And it's important. An important piece of, of the puzzle. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. How do you think about plasticity? I, I kind of think about it like, you know, we're in this Sierra Nevada, so like we're all skiers for a lot of people. Like if you go onto the mountain and you go down a ski run that's, and you go down the same place, it kind of gets grooved in the mountain a lot. And so you can kind of get into that rut. It feels like plasticity to me is like a fresh coat of snow. It covers up the groove and gives you an opportunity to make a new track. Is that, is that yeah, kind of how you that's, look at it? Yeah, that is very consistent with the the metaphor on a more technical level, we know that the classic psychedelics, which would be like psilocybin, LSD, DMT, they modulate the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. The molecular structure is nearly identical to serotonin, so it works as an agonist if it's like a lock and a key into the 2A receptor. And what it does when it modulates that is that boosts the neuroplasticity, and we now believe neurogenesis as well. And so while this plasticity is happening, there's a functional connectivity that happens between different brain networks. And for a long time, and this is based on, well, Michael Pollan's mention of the default mode network and also 
I believe it was a 2012 paper, Robin Carhart Harris, he was talking about the deactivation of the default Mo network. There's also, maybe before diving into that, probably we'll describe what the default Mo network does in the brain. It's the network that is responsible for metacognition, which is thinking about thinking, self-reflection, mind wandering, what they call time travel, which is thinking to the past, projecting to the future, rumination. And so this is a, the area in the brain that tends to be overactive in conditions like anxiety, depression, PTSD, addiction, OCD, eating disorders. And when Carhart Harris realized that there's this deactivation of the default mode network, there was, a, I would say, an analytical leap that happened that, oh, because the default network mode network is also the the seat of the sense of self and where we have a lot of our self-processing. Therefore, it must be the reason we have an ego dissolution. Mm-hmm. What they now believe is that there are, and it's true that the default mode network is downregulated, particularly with the classic psychedelics, which is part why it's can be so effective in treating this host of conditions. But there are also a lot of other high-level brain networks that are disrupted in this psychedelic experience. And at the same time, there's a functional connectivity that happens where different parts of the brain that don't normally talk to each other start talking to each other. So this is where the plasticity comes in. And Robin Carhart Harris, too, has a number of research papers out. But one is the entropic brain hypothesis, and another is called the Rebus model, which is an updated one of the entropic brain. But the metaphor you were talking about with the snow-covered hill and the sled, you know, one sled goes down another, pretty soon each sled gets pulled magnetically into these grooves, which are emblematic of our neural pathways. Mm -hmm. So we can have these deeply reinforced and rutted neural grooves that happen over time. What a classic psychedelic does is it introduces entropy in the brain, which is a a state of disorder or uncertainty, akin to shaking the snow globe. And so as you were mentioning, it basically relaxes these grooves and gives us an opportunity to repattern. But neuroplasticity itself is neutral. It's neither good or bad. And so what we do with the plasticity is the important thing, which is where the intention and the integration can come in. And I could, you know, we'd be here till tomorrow if I got going on this. So maybe I'll pause and see if you no, have any questions. I, no, I, I love the way you clarified that. I mean, that, you know, I love the way you brought in the default mode and, and helped deepen that clarification. And, you know, I've heard, um, you know, these described as non-specific amplifiers. I think you, you know, made a good point there that this is why set setting integration is so powerful because the default mode network and that plasticity is neutral. There is potential to amplify challenging experiences, right? So like doing this in a safe container and creating a lot of safety, prevents that from happening or, or minimizes the risk of that happening and then having good support afterwards to help you reframe in that period where you're neuroplastic, yes. as it were. With your psychedelic society, I mean, what type of educational, I mean, this is the type of stuff I'm assuming that you espouse and teach and, and have conversations on at your psychedelic society. Yeah. So we offer, essentially, we have monthly meetings that meet on the third Friday of the month. And it's been a form of an educational series where we have speakers that come. And sometimes it's a therapist like Tori Clark, Justin Van Pelt, who is a nurse and a veteran and CIS trained as well. And then we also have people that come in to share their stories. This last month, uh, one of the members of our board who's on our leadership team gave his personal account of healing from addictive patterns. It's called Pattern Interrupted. Very beautiful, moving personal account of his experience with psychedelics. And so many times people are enthusiastic and want, you know, this is the end all and be all to be candid that that has been me at times earlier in my life, but just really reminding people that psychedelics, you still need to do the work yourself. And so to answer your question about the kind of education that we provide, it is often centered on psychedelics, but we do, the ultimate goal is bringing healing to the community. So psychedelics are a tool for that, but we also do workshops. Like we had Dr. Keith Lowenstein come in to give, you know, Korea breath work. And this coming month will be cross-pollination, alternate methods, 
for strengthening mind, body, and spirit, where we have different practitioners locally sharing of their modalities and introducing people to things like aspects of health and fitness. Sinjin Smith will be there and Barbara Chandler, who's a therapist, will be speaking to psychedelic assisted therapy, what it is and what it is not. And Kathy Schmidt, who is also on our board and our vice president, and she's got her master's in transpersonal psychology. She is a dream coach and she leads our dream circle. And so talking about the unconscious and there's such an overlap with the unconscious and psychedelic experiences and dream states. And I'm quite a Jungian myself. So just having a place for people to come that are interested in health and wellness and different modalities and whether it's from the neuroscience to whether it's figuring out how do you vet a, a therapist. Yeah. That's great. I, I need to, I keep planning on coming to the dream circle. I have such vivid dreams all the time. And mm -hmm. I did work with a Jungian therapist for a while and it was uh, fascinating. It seems like you dream more when you're working with someone like that. We're in this community and anybody who's listening to my show knows that mental health is a big topic for me. Like I really care deeply about this. And, and yet we still face this huge stigma in our society about it. So the fact that obviously the psychedelics is at the root of this, but I love that you're really just talking about healing. I mean, so often I run to people they're like, well, are you seeing a therapist? Well, no, no, I would never do that. Or, you know, they have a lot of aversion to that. So there's a stigma, even with the idea that seeing a therapist could actually be for wellness. You know, it just a lot of, you know, just a lot of historical issues people are trying to unpack. So I, I, I love the fact that you're bringing in these different elements and modalities because I think that, you know, we, we touched on this a little bit before, but people can have these experiences and have breakthroughs. What it seems to happen more often, I've heard it referred to as like having a peek through. You get like a little <laughs> bit of an insight, but then you have to go do the work to find the, like you build a half bridge. And you have to do the work to find the other part of the bridge. And that's that's the thing, right? I mean, people can get into spiritual bypass if they just think that, I'm gonna, hey, I'm going to take this. I'm going to have this profound experience and everything's going to be okay. You really do have to do the work. And that's, I think that's the biggest thing is accepting and turning towards those things that are, that are challenging. That's a big shift for most people. I think, and not to get on my soapbox here, but like, I think fundamentally we're constantly trying to move away from discomfort. As a society, you know, we've got a pill for that. We've got a distraction for this. And, you know, to do your own work takes some digging into the, uh, into the, into the dirt, you know, of yourself. And it's just, it's, I don't think we support that as a culture. I think we are often like, do this and you'll feel better. That's a quick fix. And that's just not this experience. Although it can, I mean, and I think why people get so enthusiastic about it, to your point, is if you've been struggling with something and you have, it feels like you have 10,000 pounds in your back and you have one of these experiences and now it weighs 500 pounds, <laughs> that feels miraculous. It feels miraculous. There have been moments definitely for me where I would say touchstone experiences that have forever changed my life. And there also have been very many that have been rungs on a ladder, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, which is always, which is can be a little frustrating when you have this like, profound peak experience and then it's like incrementalism <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah what happened to the profundity of the whole thing <laughs> but at least from my perspective we're constantly learning and journeying and changing and so it's not a race to the top as it were yes yes process and i'm really i'm glad that you mentioned the mental health piece because nevada is 51st in the nation you know depending on which statistics that you're looking at for mental health and that has been the primary push with Senator Wynn putting together this Senate bill and Nevada Coalition for Psychedelic Medicines is addressing the mental health. The current treatments are largely ineffective or failing us. And we have extraordinary opportunity. These compounds are remarkable. And I think there is such a stigma with the mental health because you know a lot of people don't seek mental health for a variety of reasons. But normalizing the conversation and realizing that we're all working with something. It seems to be the price of admission for humanity. <laughs> for humanity. <laughs> and to varying degrees, whether it's severe trauma or whether it's just life can be difficult and dealing with, with mental health stuff, being able to find pathways for healing and it and the classic psychedelics and MDMA, as you pointed out with the research. And it's interesting because some people are purists and say, you know, 
only in a ceremony, only in a clinical setting. I think for a lot of reasons, because psychedelics tend to be unpredictable, and as you stated earlier, there is a, a safety component in addition to being nonspecific amplifiers. So I think due caution is always advised. However, sometimes the most remarkable healing experiences can happen in what would be considered a recreational setting. Yeah. You know, ravers, a, I've never been to a rave, but I have been to Burning Man. I've also had moments at a at music at a concert where something has deeply touched me and I've been able to shift my perspective about something. I remember this happening shortly before my mom passed and it was so transformational and much needed at that period in my life. It probably wouldn't have been happening if I had, if it had been one of the journeys at home on my bed with a blindfold on, but with MDMA and with the classic psychedelics, we know that MDMA is remarkable for PTSD and psilocybin and some of the classic psychedelics certainly are as well. They have different mechanisms in the brain. And then we know from all of the research with treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, anxiety, plenty of studies with PTSD as well. And, and as I mentioned earlier, the eating disorders and the OCD, knowing that we have these compounds, which based on Dr. David Nutt's leading neuropsychopharmacologist in the world, has devised a harm scale, which is based on two metrics, harm to self and harm to society. And psilocybin is by far the safest. It's 12 times safer than alcohol. MDMA is much safer too. We have these substances, which the safety profiles on them are you know, uncontestable at this point, but we're also dealing with 50 years of societal conditioning due to the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, where they've been placed Schedule 1 next to very dangerous substances like heroin and or crack, fentanyl. fentanyl. I mean, that, just listening to the testimony on SB 242, which we should, you know, we'll get into, just hearing the law enforcement, and I, and I appreciate law enforcement's concern for the safety, but you know, they, they had one example where they thought someone, there was a, a shooting that the person may have been on mushrooms, I, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking, how many shootings have you been to where you know the people were on alcohol? Like, it's just not even, it's it's like not even in the same conversation. We've just accepted all of the ills of alcohol. And you know, now we're splitting hairs over the safety profiles of something that no, that they know based on Dr. Dave Nuts and all yeah. is, is safe. It, it, I, yeah, that was a frustrating moment. But Yeah, I mean, 140,000 deaths a year alcohol related, 500 deaths a year Tylenol related, half of them are by accident. Then we have psilocybin where there was a study, I think it was 9,337 users of mushrooms and maybe three of them ended up in seeking some emergency care and all of them, but one returned to normal after 24 hours. And I think there was some aftercare needed for the other person, but it's just talking about completely different things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's transition into the other hat that you wear, which is the executive director for the Nevada Coalition for Psychedelic Medicine. And this is really the advocacy arm. So where Sierra Psychedelic is really education, integration circles, harm reduction, Nevada Coalition is really around public policy and advocacy work. So tell me a little bit about what the current mission for that is and, and what's going on in Nevada. So Nevada Coalition for Psychedelic Medicines is devoted to bringing healing through psychedelic medicines, through advocacy and education, helping to increase access and to increase understanding of these substances and to destigmatize and decriminalize the use of them. And so we have been lobbying and advocating and educating, meeting with legislators. Uh, our legislative team has been down to Carson. We went down... Um, several days in the last couple of weeks and have met with quite a few of some senators. And it's clearly not a partisan issue. And a lot of the misconceptions, once they are cleared up, almost invariably gain support, regardless of whether someone is a Democrat or someone is a Republican. But with the Nevada Coalition, you know, our, our leadership, our board is comprised of former law enforcement, veterans, medical professionals, therapists, global health consultant, and also 
liaisons with, you know, arts and culture and athletics. So there is a uh, true mission to help the public and also the legislators understand that to dispel basically shades of Timothy Leary. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, there's quite a bit of stereotypes and understandably so. And that what we're talking about is a legitimate therapy, not a free for all. And it's not like everybody go out, take psychedelics and have a good time, though there have been reports that can happen. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Any, anything that could, could have a shadow side, you know. Yeah. So. You're thinking about having a, a clinical session with psilocybin. No, we're not talking about like, let's have a clinical session with fentanyl and, you know, sprinkle of heroin or something where these are completely different compounds yeah. and science is there to show it. So, yeah, I think, you know, just on that metaphor, I mean, people are using heroin and, and alcohol and, and to some degree marijuana to move away from their discomfort. I mean, generally psychedelics move you closer to it yes. <laughs> to allow you to process it, right? Like instead of continuing to move away from something, these medicines help you metabolize it. And so it's very, just, just that orientation. I think, you know, people have this stigma of drug users, like, oh, they're moving away from or, or not dealing with. And it's quite the opposite with psychedelics. It's actually a commitment to turn towards it. And, you know, people that are unfamiliar with this worry about addiction, but you talk to anybody that's had a, a macro dose of mushrooms, that's not something they're going to go back and do next week <laughs> or it's profound enough and it's, it doesn't have any addictive reinforcement. Unlike, you know, some of those other ones like fentanyl and alcohol and cocaine and all those. What's the current, so there's a bill that's going through the Nevada uh, Senate right now, SB 242. What's been the process like? I mean, you got it to get a bill sponsor. I mean, I'm somewhat familiar with the process, but this is, it, it's a lot to get a bill through the Senate committees. So tell me a little bit about the experience and what the aim of the bill is. It's been a very exciting experience. Senator Rochelle Wynn, at the time she was Assemblywoman, Senator Rochelle Wynn has been the champion. She has been amazing and introduced SB242. It's been a process, and as you know, there have been a number of amendments happening Initially, it was slated as a study bill for psilocybin and MDMA with a section to decriminalize a small amount of psilocybin for personal use. It's been going through the process of amendments and currently is slated to establish a working group to discuss entheogenic plants such as psilocybin. There would be 15 people on the working group. It has passed out of the committee the Senate Health and Human Services Committee with a four to one vote in our favor and is currently on hold due to the fiscal impact. So it hasn't yet gone to Senate vote, which would have gone last Tuesday, but there has been increasing support. And my last check, there is a total of nine co-sponsors on this bill, including wow. Senator Wynn from both sides of the aisle. And our hope is that we're Lobbying for a path forward to decriminalization, first and foremost, there are some long-term goals with NCPM, which would expand upon that. But for this session, being that it is still in the amendment process, there is a process of negotiation. We are still hoping to potentially find ways to include things that maybe have been removed, because there's been a lot of things removed and put back in, and that's just the normal the normal way it goes to my understanding. Yeah. I mean, it's like watching sausage get made. I don't often watch Senate he hearings, but I watched, you know, the two hour session of SB 242, which was, and I would encourage anybody who's interested in this to, and cares about what's going on in Nevada to, to go watch that. You can go Google it. And it was, first of all, you did an amazing job and just the number of people that came up to support that from all walks of life former SWAT cops and SEALs and veterans and, you know, uh, people of all walks of life that this medicine has helped them. It was really profound. I mean, I, and I'm, you know, anybody that knows me, I'm a pretty emotive guy, but I was crying a lot through the whole thing just based on hearing, you know, people's personal experiences. And I just want to congratulate you on the progress to date. You know, this is, you are trying to change 50 years of stigmatization. And I think that the culture is getting there, but it's hard. And I, and I could just listen to the responses and the challenges. It is still an uphill battle. 
I was really encouraged by the questions and the support and you know, you did a really great job of, of organizing that and getting, getting that heavy, starting the conversation. And hopefully what I'm hearing you say is it's not clear exactly where it's going to land, but there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, one of the things that. And thank you. It was yeah. a team effort. Yeah. Like, no, for it, sure. it, was, it was great. And so actually with that, I mean, to learn more about this, you can go to nevadacpm.org and I'll make sure and put that in the show notes. And I'm assuming you could always use some financial support to help with the lobbying efforts. Now is the time. We definitely do need support. There is a lot going on and we have an excellent lobbyist who's been providing a lot of guidance and, and access. And if anybody feels called to support, it would hugely make a difference. And just even even opening up this conversation in the state is laying the groundwork for future sessions because this will likely be an incremental process as we move forward. But yeah. the donations that have come in so far have been pivotal in getting us to this point. Yeah. It's not going to look the same as marijuana. I mean, these are different medicines. This is a very different thing. Like this is not something that's going to show up with a, a bunch of stores on the street. I mean, it's a very different right. type of medicine and different kind of action. And and so it, it's going to require a bit of a measured approach is what it sounds like. It is. And there are a lot of questions about how to proceed on a fundamental level, even as far as criminal justice reform. We have people fearing to go to jail. Parents are afraid of losing custody of their kids, therapists are afraid of losing their licenses. The penalties for mushrooms should not be equivalent to fentanyl. So there's a common sense approach to this is let's hopefully at least decriminalize or what that means is lowest law enforcement priority. People aren't fearing prosecution. As far as making these medicines available for access is and how to do that safely and in a way that makes sense. We're trying to learn from other states. Oregon and Colorado have legalized psilocybin for therapeutic use. And there are a lot of things that aren't working in Oregon. And what we would like to do is, particularly with this working group, is to figure out what will work for our state. Last I checked, I think 19 states have active legislation. 15, at least, cities have decriminalized entheogenic plants and fungi, including... Oakland, Seattle, Washington, D.C. passed with a 76% voter approval. Wow. Australia has now legalized psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, I believe, and MDMA for PTSD. So that is huge. So it's definitely a global conversation. There's so many different nuances to this. I mean, I, I just in terms of decrim, I mean, is there a possibility, do you think, in this bill to get something that lowers the... The fact that if you have some, I don't know what the ratio was, but it was like a enough fentanyl to kill like a thousand people mm-hmm. and four pounds of mushrooms, it's like the same penalty. You think there's a possibility or that's one of, of the reducing things? Reducing the penalties? Yeah. That's something that we've been trying to do. My understanding on this is that the law enforcement has been very resistant to that. So I don't know where it currently stands. I believe that we have not had a lot of success with those attempts. Again, you know, I have a lot of empathy and I understand because we have have people that have spent their entire careers fighting a war on drugs to keep communities safe. And all of their training tells them that these are hard drugs to be worried about. And so this is a matter of education and awareness. and And I feel very hopeful, but I also think it might require some patience to, as we move forward. Yeah, I appreciate and like I it, I appreciate your prudence on that. I think this is it is tough for anybody to accept new realities and you know, it's not if you really go back and look at some of the origins of the war on drugs, it was very political. I mean, there's a lot of things mm-hmm. that are coming out about Nixon. I mean, there's a lots of disinformation, you know, things about changing your chromosomes. I mean, it was clearly propagated and and so in some aspects, I, I don't want to call it the entire war on drugs, but like in some aspects, especially around these medicines, it was built on a lie. Like, and that's not conjecture. That's true. There's like, a direct quote. Dan Bohm, the journalist, quoted John Ehrlichman, who was the assistant to the president for domestic affairs for Nixon. I think this is pretty close to the quote. He said, the Nixon campaign and the Nixon administration after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. 
But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could break up their meetings, raid their homes, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So very damning quote, all things considered. I can see why the Nixon administration was alarmed by Timothy Leary and his guru syndrome. It's unfortunate that it resulted in the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 because there had been three decades of research yeah. nearly it before that. stopped. Yeah, it stopped, stopped research. went underground. They had, you know, 40,000 research participants, at least 1,000 papers, six global conferences, so much um, success with alcohol use disorder. They were finding that 45 to 50% success rate for alcohol with LSD, whereas the treatment center is lucky to get 5 to 10%. And so then the therapists and medical professionals that were coming along after that weren't even aware that this research had happened. When you really get in and understand that there has been we basically shut down a potential pathway for real healing for for our citizens for 40, 50 years. It's pretty shocking. And of course, we're going to have a measured approach to come back. But I, you know, I'm hopeful. I mean, there's, you know, my brother's really involved with maps. I mean, there's a bunch of money going into this research. And I, I really think we're big on rights in our country. I really feel like we should have a fundamental right to heal. I know yes. we have some right to try and all that, but we should have a right to heal and it just, it does not seem okay to me that someone should see any jail time or any penalties for having a personal use of something that is deeply healing and that has been used by indigenous tribes for thousands of years. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Yes. In the words of Assemblyman Max Carter, he gave a very stirring testimony at the hearing, the tagline, heal loudly. It might be healing loudly because we've been using both, but it's been catching on and I love that. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm just really encouraged to see that the legislators are open to this and understanding. And, you know, I think one of the things we haven't really, we've talked about it tangentially is just the real impact on, you know, our first responders and our veterans. I mean, this is, you know, my brother's a veteran. I have a lot of friends now in the, that are first responders and veterans. And that is a group of people that experience a lot of trauma and difficulty. And yet those are the f people that we're tasked with, we're saving our lives. And it's just really disheartening to me that we can't do something for that group in particular. And, and it does seem like they're, in a lot of cases, that's sort of the tip of the spear. We're starting to see organization around that. What's been your experience, you know, with the veteran community? Yes. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that too, because one of the things about decriminalization, it's a step in the right direction, but it's not making it legal, you know, for access for healing you know, active service members, active law enforcement, they can't legally partake, even if it's decriminalized, nor, nor can anybody really. And so a huge amount of lives could be saved when we get to the point where we can legalize for therapeutic use. Justin Van Pelt, as I was telling you earlier, has been instrumental in connecting me with a number of people in this community. And the stories that I've been hearing, you know, I have struggle with my own things over the years, but I've never experienced the kind of work-related trauma that these men and women have. Yeah. And so hearing their stories is always deeply moving and reinforces my resolve on every level when I hear stories of the profound changes when nothing has worked and the amount of, you know, veteran suicides, which, you know, are estimated at 17 to 22 a day, but Operation Deep Dive estimates it at much higher, maybe closer to 40, depending yeah. on the metrics that you're using. I think it's Im imperative, first and foremost. It goes across the, it's not just military and law enforcement, but I, you know, people that work in all sorts of, you know, trauma centers and- Yeah, like, firefighters. Firefighters. Police, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I know a lot of people, but I personally know six people who were on a path of suicide, like that were, had plans or had attempted that had found direct healing as a result of this. And that's just, you just can't make that up. I mean, I know these people, I know the challenge that they faced and think about, I mean, every suicide is, it's not just that person. It's a broken family. It's a broken home. And it, you know, that leaves a wound generationally. So, it, you know, th this medicine just has profound opportunity for healing, especially in that community. And I'm really 
you know, I'm hopeful. It does seem like, you know, that community speaking to their peers in power will resonate. I mean, I think any, you know, just watching the SB 242 testimony, you know, I, I understand the role of the sheriff and the county. If they really understand what's going on for the men and women on the ground, they know that there's a problem and they do not have good solutions. I mean, it's just, there's just no two ways around it. And I, this is not a panacea, but it definitely op- it represents a unique opportunity that we just haven't seen before. To your point, I mean, we need to get it through the federal level so that even if it's decriminalized, you know, those folks who've sworn to serve and protect still have access to it. Yeah. That group in particular, it's, you know, it has been my highest honor to be able to sit in circle with people and hold space and share what, what I can to help support that. I, I, it's just, it, I have a really good friend of mine who's, you know, a disabled veteran. I've known him for 30 years. It's tough that the things that the VA has provided are not really sufficient, you know, and I know they, they're trying, but it's just not quite cutting it. And it's just, I'm, I can't even, I sh- can't even imagine what the economic and, and psychic impact is for all this. So, yeah, I, I just, again, this is a, something that's deeply impactful to me and my family and my friends. And so I just appreciate all your commitment to, to helping advocate and get the word out for, for this group of people. The feeling is mutual, Doug. Thank you for all the support. Yeah. Well, it takes real, I mean, as we kind of bring this to a close, it just, I just want to say it just takes real courage to step out. And I think, you know, when I think about courage, I think about it in kind of the traditional way and then also at the root of big heart, right? It takes huge heart to do what you're doing, to put yourself out there, to turn against the normative culture and say, this is important. And I'm willing to, to dedicate now your full, this is your full-time endeavor to help support Nevada. And I, and I, I just applaud you, Kate. I really appreciate all your hard work. Thank you. That really means a lot. And as I was saying, we all appreciate you and everything that you've done and, you know, offered guidance, you know, with the legislative effort and just generally everything you do for this community and and, and Nevada. Very grateful to be here and to have you as a friend. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. If people want to find more about you, we can go, you can go to the Sierra Psychedelic Society or the Nevada Coalition for Psychedelic Medicine. I'm sure we left out a million things and we could probably talk for another two hours. Oh no, that's perfect. Yes. SierraPsychedelic.org and the Instagram and Facebook is at Sierra, at Sierra Psychedelic Society. And we mentioned earlier, the Nevada Coalition is NevadaCPM.org. Same for the socials. Yeah. Well, I will see you at the next Zero Psychedelic Society meeting. Thank you. Mm-hmm.